I'm turning to Matthew chapter 23. If you have a copy of the Word of God, if you want to turn there with me, we're going to begin reading in verse 29, going down through verse 39, as we consider this last woe in a series of eight, of which Jesus has now turned his attention specifically and is addressing the, the scribes and the Pharisees as he is not holding back any words, as he has ministered among them for three years of his public life, as they have rejected him every step along the way, we need to fill the gravity. As one author said, these are the most terrible words that our Lord has spoken in his earthly life. This is God. He is our God. He is to be feared. And if there is not a sense of the fear of God that will not curb or govern your spirit, and it will cause you not to be respectful of him. And so we need to have a sense of the gravity, as unpleasant and uncomfortable as it may be. He has given us this truth that in this it might be for our warning, and as it warns us, it would be for our salvation. So now hear the word of the Lord from beginning at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more. Till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our gracious Father, these are powerful and stunning words that our gentle and meek Lord spoke in a very strong and stern manner. May we see both his gentleness and love as well as his stern warning. May we not be benign as we hear the word preached. And as powerful as this passage is, it is not with the ability that any preacher has to bring it to heart and to press it into our lives. And so we look to your spirit of God to fall fresh upon the preaching of the word in each one of our hearts this day, that we might hear it with the gravity but also with the thankfulness that you have given us this word and open our ears to hear it today. So do open our ears that we may hear and be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so be glorified in the preaching now of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In our fallen nature, which we have inherited from Adam since the time that he fell in Genesis 3, by default, is that which suppresses the truth. It hates the truth. It suppresses it in an unrighteousness. We don't like the truth, we don't hear the truth, and yet we often tell ourselves quite differently. But this is a part of the old nature, to believe the lies. And, and yet, it is that which we need to understand, that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. This is what the Pharisees had 
rebuffed Jesus in John chapter 8 when he said that. And he says, well, we've never been enslaved to anyone. We don't need to be free. And he would declare to them, no, you do need to be free. You're deceived. You are of your father, the devil. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 and 2, tells us that you and I were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. This is how we all came into this world in Adam. We were children of disobedience who lived by the course of this world, who was governed by the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And unless you have been born again, this is still true of you. In order to become new creatures, no longer of this world, controlled by the devil, you must be born again. This is what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who was a Pharisee, who came to him by night, who was inquiring of him. And this great cosmic battle in which you and I find ourselves, not of any choice of our own, but by necessity, you are either on the devil's side or God's side. And you must be very clear on whose side you are. Many churchgoers assume that because they are in church on the Lord's Day, that they are on God's side. That would have been true of the Pharisees and the scribes and the majority of the Jews in Jesus' day, but it was not true. In the passage before us this morning, we come to the last woe of this chapter, and he calls out their hypocrisy very clearly. Hypocrites. Woe. As these woes have been given, they have a sense of of sadness and grief and gravity to them, but also a divine pronouncement of judgment upon them. And with these terrible pronouncements of judgment, he informs the religious leaders of his day that they so, so suppress the truth, the truth is not in them. They're believing a lie. And they're play acting in the midst of this deception. They were so deceived that they could not and they would not hear him. And as the leaders of the nation went, so went the people of his day. And the Lord gives us a passage like this, as uncomfortable as it is, to wake us up, to stir us, to make us sense the gravity, to remove any blindness or the apathy in our spirit. And so he begins in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. The adornment of tombs and the memorial of fathers was nothing new for the Jews of the first century, and it's still going on today. It's not unusual even for us. The Jews were known and still known for their veneration, veneration of the tombs and holy people and martyrs that they would look to. They make memorials and embellish their tombs and make them sites of pilgrimage. A few years ago, I was flying back from Vienna to London, and I was on a plane with about a half a dozen to a dozen Orthodox Jews that, were, were, that stood out. They were visible. One of them sat beside me so I could inquire, what are they doing? Uh, and we had a conversation. And with this Orthodox Jew, I asked him, so what, are you going back home or are you coming from home? He goes, we're heading back to home. I said, and what brought you to Vienna? He said, well, the group of us left this morning very early, and we took a plane from London to Vienna, and then we got in a van that all we fit in, and we traveled several hours to a gravesite of, of a rabbi to pay him honor. 
And now we're on our return trip back home. In a single day, they then took that day and made this large pilgrimage across several countries from plane to car and now back again. And so I'm thinking, well, this man must have been really something. I said, um, so did he recently? Oh, no, no, no. And who was this guy? Well, he was a very important rabbi. When did he live? About 400 years ago or 200, whatever it was. It wasn't someone that they knew personally. It wasn't someone that they had had a personal ministry with. And it was very similar to the day in which Jesus was then speaking to the Jews of his day, where they would take and embellish the, and make monuments out of the tombs of the prophets. It was a part of their culture. And yet the Jewish leaders of his day would defend their piety and claim that they would not have been partakers of the death of God's holy people who bore the truth to them. Today there is a memorial marked out that you can see, you can find it online, or if you happen to be in the country at the time, you can see this. And it's a memorial made to Zechariah at the burial site of what is thought to be the burial site of Zechariah. And the Jews made this stone memorial for him, carved out with kind of a pyramid-shaped roof on top of this. And so they, they made this memorial and yet distanced themselves and said, we would not have been with our fathers who killed Zechariah. The Old Testament tells us that the, God's people killed many of the ones who came to them with the truth. Uriah in Jeremiah 26 was a prophet that God's people killed. Zechariah, a very notable one, as mentioned in this passage, the son of Jehoiada, we read from 2 Chronicles chapter 24. When the people stoned him for warning them, there was a massacre of prophets led by Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 18. And later, legend attributes martyrdom to Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Micah. These are men who proclaim the truth, who are heralds of the word of God. And these Pharisees who adorned the tombs of these prophets are one in solidarity with the ones who killed them. And that's why Jesus said, you hypocrites. While they would certainly deny such a claim, Jesus made it clear that their lives testified against them. Verse 31, therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. The rejection of John the Baptist when he was calling them to repentance and now Jesus puts them in the same communion as their fathers who killed the prophets. Stephen would be next. These are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. They are of the same spiritual family. The term sons here is an idiom that identifies one with a group that has solidarity with them. And here Jesus uses the phrase sons as though they were of the same spiritual family. And at the time that Jesus was speaking these woes to them, he knew that the Pharisees had already fixed, not only in their hearts, but in their plans to put in motion to kill him, and he would be dead in two days. They witness against themselves by their deeds and by their attitudes and by their actions and by their thoughts and by their words, by the life that they live, that they are exactly opposite of what they claim to be. And that's the danger of deception. Those deceived simply do not know it. They believe a lie 
while thinking it is the truth. This is the power of our most formidable foe. He is the father of lies. He can deceive even the elect unless God intercedes. And what makes this passage more fearful is that Jesus was talking to those who were God's special people and leaders of that nation of whom he favored. And by way of extension, he would be saying this today of many church members who go to church every Lord's Day and to many pastors who are preaching in the pulpits. You make many memorials of the martyrs, of the reformers. You make these memorials and embellish their tombs. You make pilgrimages to these countries, to England and Scotland and Germany, to, to see these great memorials. But by your life, you show that you are not one in solidarity with them, but the ones who killed them. How many monuments like that have been erected in England and Scotland and Germany and other countries, Switzerland and France, who celebrate men who led the way in the Reformation, that are walked by each day with a sense of affirmation by those who consider themselves on their side, but whose lives testify against them that they are one in unity with those who murdered them. It's not enough to go to church every week. It's not enough to identify yourself with the saints of old. It's not enough to love their history and read about their lives. It's not enough to be part of a Christian community like Heritage. You can't merely identify with the saints. You must be born again. And when you are, your life will testify for you and not against you. And to these Pharisees and the majority of the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking, their lives testified against them. And so what does Jesus command them to do? He commands them, verse 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. That's an astounding statement. He is saying here, go ahead. Fill up the vessel of your fathers. Jesus then turns the irony back on them, showing that they are one with their murderous fathers and they are in communion with their unity with them. They are one in solidarity with the murderers and, and with their fathers. And the vessel now that they are filling is the same vessel that their fathers have added to. And this vessel that Jesus is telling them to fill it up is so large that it takes multiple generations to fill it up. Centuries go by, generation after generation, and each one of those generations is filling up the vessel with its contribution. And the vessel is immensely large, but it is not infinite. And after many years, filling it to the brim, it is now required of this last generation to complete the full measures that the fathers began. And he says, fill it up. Go ahead, fill up the measure of the guilt. Bring it to completion, that which your fathers had begun. And in this case, what is filling the vessel are guilty deeds of people who are incurring the wrath of God. Deeds that will bring down his wrath, wrath that is stored up for many generations, and it's going to come down on this generation who will complete and fill it to its brim, the vessel of their fathers. And he puts it in terms of a command, an imperative here, a directive. It is a judicial 
command, a judicial directive that brings them into judgment. Go on like you've been doing. Complete what your fathers began. And it is a punishment to give a command like that. It is a horror and a terrible thing to hear a command like that. But it's not because it pleased the Lord to do that. But to bring into final judgment what has been going on all along. And so he says in the next verse, verse 33, brood of vipers, you serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Here, as Jesus uses this very chosen language, he identifies with John the Baptist. You might remember in the early days of John the Baptist, and the Pharisees came out to him as John is calling them to repentance. And John the Baptist uses the same word, serpent, brood of vipers. John would say, how can you escape the wrath to come? Jesus would say, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? The imagery that John and Jesus used was finding a solidarity and a unity with the seed of the woman and the message that would be proclaimed. The imagery identifies a cosmic battle that has been going on since the beginning. It is like those passages that I referred to earlier in John chapter 8, when Jesus is even identifying with the circumcised Jews, but telling those circumcised Jews who are in covenant with God that they truly are not of the seed of the woman, but of the seed of their father, the devil. They are not of the truth. They didn't like the truth. They didn't like what implications the truth would bring into their lives. They didn't like the ones who proclaimed the truth. They didn't like preachers of the truth. They didn't like the prophets of the truth. And they rejected the prophets of the truth in their own day, and they identified with the ones who rejected them in days past. And the reason why they rejected John the Baptist is because he preached the truth. The reason why they rejected Jesus is because he was the truth. And Jesus said to them, you are not really who you claim to be. You are children of your father, the devil. The deception was so great in their lives that they accused Jesus of the very thing that they were guilty of. You remember the day when they could not deny that he was casting out demons and they couldn't explain it. So they just said, well, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. They then were then trying to find fault that Jesus was of the seed of the serpent, when in fact he was the seed of the woman promised. The deception was so great that they accused Jesus himself of the very thing that they were guilty of. And how true that is in our own lives when we are blinded and deceived by our own pride. We often find fault in others of the very things that we are most guilty of. And yet here the scribes and the Pharisees, we, they were the ones who were being the devil's agent. And that's often a characteristic of those who are deceived. While they say one thing, their lives actually testify the opposite. They didn't want to submit to the life of, that Jesus commanded, so they commanded, so he went ahead and commanded them, fill up this vessel. Fill it to the brim. Fill it full. In a very short time, in a single generation, under 40 years from the time he's saying this, this vessel would be full of the Father's guilt. And then the wrath of God would be poured out upon the ones that he warned. Now, Jesus, in that time, would send more heralds. He would send more prophets. I think you can see the long-suffering of the Lord always extending opportunity 
for repentance until the time is no more. Verse 34, he says, Therefore, indeed, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered. Notice how he said, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Here, Jesus himself is identifying with the one who sends the prophets. And he also identifies them, one in solidarity, with the one who murdered them. And the interesting thing here is the reason... In verse 34, he says, therefore, I'm bringing this to a conclusion. The reason I'm sending them to you is so that you can fill up that vessel to the brim. In order for you to do that, I'm sending more prophets to you. Now, that's interesting, I think, because... In the sending of more prophets and wise men and scribes, these preachers and the teachers of the truth, Jesus provides more opportunity for them to repent, to be born again, to come into the kingdom of truth and of life. But he's also doing this so the cup of iniquity can be filled. And so his wrath would be poured out accordingly. If they rejected the truth, which they did, it'll be evidence of their rejection, which had been given by their rejection of these, these heralds. And as they reject the herald of truth, they're rejecting the truth that they bore, and they reject Jesus who gave them the truth, and they're rejecting Jesus himself. And what Jesus is here prophesying is that in all of this, it's been going on for generation after generation after generation, and it's now coming to a head where it's about to be full, and something is about to happen. And it's going to happen in their own generation. In their own generation. Can you imagine something that God himself has promised that has been going on for thousands of years, and now he says, in your lifetime, this is going to come about. That would be a fearful thing. And that's what's going on. Jesus was prophesying about a corporate judgment of all of Israel. It was a judgment that was going to be poured out here in a single generation for the vessel of guilt that had been filling up all the way back to Cain. And it was through those years, each generation had been adding to it. As they rejected those bearers of the truth, and this collective judgment would be poured out on this generation of men that he is now addressing. He could see their faces. He could call them by name. He could see them like this. But yet all of the wrath that had been pent up and put in this vessel from the time of Cain would now come upon them corporately and they would be the recipients in the past, might echo the parable here of the, the vine uh, of the vineyard owner. Remember back in chapter 21? This is basically the same conversation. But in the parable of the vineyard owner, he would then send his servants back to the vine dressers, and one by one they killed the servants. These are the prophets. Finally, he said, I'll send my son. And they said, We'll kill the son that we might have the inheritance. And then he asked them, what will happen to those who kill the son? And they said that he, the owner will not have mercy. And they answered rightly. So all that Jesus had been teaching in the courtyard of the temple, these would be his final words of warning to them. This was the last thing he was going to have a conversation about with them. 
It's not like the only conversation. It's not like they hadn't had years of understanding, years of opportunity, and yet time after time again, they hardened their heart with the truth. They rejected him in their pride. And there was a coming judgment of God that would be upon these people. It would become on the nation, on the Jews, on the religious leaders that had been stored up after generation and generation. It was a judicial judgment upon the corporate people of God, the likes of which the world has not ever seen. This judgment would begin in A.D. 66. We could be thinking that approximately it's about A.D. 33 when Jesus, maybe A.D. 30, 27, but within 35 years. And Jesus was about to change world history. A lot of things were going to happen in a very short amount of time. This is all part of a cosmic battle that spanned back all the way to the fall. During the curse after the fall, God created an enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It was an enmity that God himself created, but it was an enmity that he created for our good. The battle that God had established and the war that he had uh, created, this enmity, was to bring us back to his side because we had sided with with the serpent. And this is all part of the spiritual battle for the earth and for, for mankind. And from that enmity, there would be two genealogies that would concur throughout all of history, but yet there would be enmity between these two genealogies. And these genealogies were not physical, they were spiritual. It would be God and his children and Satan and his children. And frankly, it didn't matter if you were circumcised and marked out as God's child, if you actually were of the evil one, as Jesus would often point out to these Pharisees even. They were of the spiritual lineage of their father, the devil. This great cosmic battle, which has been going on since the fall, has has multifaceted aspects to it. It it, it occurs corporately as well as with every single individual. This cosmic battle includes things that are visible as well as things that are invisible. It includes angelic beings which interact in this present world and influence much of what goes on here. It includes humans where the spiritual and the physical components together are included. It includes societies and nations. It includes individuals like you and me, where even the battle rages between flesh and spirit. And the battleground is the earth, the sphere in which we live. This cosmic battle of unimaginable proportions has been going on since Genesis 3, and there's something significant that was about to come to head right here in this generation. From the beginning of that fall, Satan fell from heaven, and Revelation 12 tells us that he threw a third of the angelic beings down to earth. The aspect of this cosmic battle is the conflict that goes on here in the angelic realm, in the heavenly realm, in the earthly realm, but these two, there's a big battle that is going on. Satan in the angelic realm of the fallen realm now, here he is upon the earth, that's why he's called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, and he does control up to a certain point, up to this time anyway, the principalities and the powers. He had a kingdom upon this world that Jesus was about to destroy. And these religious leaders of his day who were marked out in the covenant of Israel were actually in his kingdom and not in our Lord's. We can see a glimpse of the spiritual battle that goes on between heaven and earth and with the earthly powers, even in passages like Daniel chapter 10, when we see that the the prince of the kingdom of Persia... uh, withstood 
the angelic force for 21 days, and it was in response to Daniel's prayer that the angelic beings came to speak to him. And so what our prayers do are very mysterious, but one thing that we do know they do, they influence the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes that we do not see. It's all part of the same battle. And while angels are battling together, the good and the bad, the angelic hosts, the archangels are battling with the demonic and the Satan, it's all connected to the societies and the nations here upon the earth. Behind every world leader and every nation, there are angelic beings that are governing the matters. We see this in passages like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 when it's speaking of kings of kingdoms there, but the characteristics they are giving are revealing to us Satan. There is a spiritual lineage of the seed of the serpent that plays itself out here upon the earth in people, in real lives. And yet it is the same that is true regarding the seed of God. In godly homes, who have godly children, and God raises up a godly seed for himself through this. The first of those battles took place between Cain and Abel. Cain rose up and he slew his brother Abel. He killed him. And you remember that Cain worshipped the same God as Abel did. But Cain was of his father the devil. He was a murderer. He attacked Abel. Why did he attack Abel? Because Abel's works were righteous. That's the reason why. Is that any reason to attack anybody? Because they're righteous? Satan does that. Satan's children does that. Don't be surprised. This is part of the cosmic battle. Remember, we war not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and rulers in darkness. Because Abel bore the truth and he loved God, this was the very reason that Cain attacked him. And we see this being repeated time and time again, even in the covenant lineage of Israel. Remember Esau? Esau was circumcised just like Jacob was. Esau was in covenant with God. But he rejected God. He sold his birthright. And the entire nation arose from Esau that we know as Edom that rejected God and became one of Israel's greatest enemies. And these were brothers of the same family. Twins, mind you. But his origins were founded within God's camp. But he was never of the lineage of the seed of the woman. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada that we read about here, he was the high priest after his father Jehoiada died. In the days of Joash, it says, Joash did right in the eyes of the Lord as long as Jehoiada lived. It's one of the saddest statements of implication in the Bible, because as soon as Jehoiada the high priest died, the leaders of Israel then came upon Joash, and then Joash conspired with them and went and stoned Zechariah, who was giving them a warning in the temple courtyard itself. He sent to them prophets to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them and would not listen, is how the passage says it. The Spirit came upon Zechariah, he warns them, and right there in the temple courtyard, right where Jesus is confronting this crowd of Pharisees and scribes. They stone Zechariah, and they're about to crucify our Lord. The battle of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman has been going on since the fall of man. And it is so much of a battle that oftentimes it happens within the covenant people of God. Those who are circumcised, those who are baptized, those within the church, because it is a spiritual lineage. And just before Zechariah died, these are the very words he said. The Lord look on it 
and repay. And now here, 800 and some years later, after the stoning of Zechariah, Jesus is standing one in solidarity with him. And the Pharisees are one in solidarity with those who killed him. And we have the cosmic battle heating up between these two. And Jesus is about to repay. And here is Israel who was to represent corporately the seed of the woman. And while Israel physically represented this spiritual reality, it failed spiritually to do what it represented corporately. There was a corporate failure on Israel's part to fulfill the covenant of God. And while this cosmic battle includes all peoples and all nations and all society, Israel was God's special people, his chosen people, his privileged people, the people that would bring forth the, the Messiah. They cradled the Savior of the world. And now they would reject the very Messiah and Savior that they long to see. We are two days away in this incident where these leaders, with the support of all the people, would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and two days from the time that they would do so. But Jesus would rise again in three days. He would send it back up into heaven. His work here would be finished. And within the same generation, he would destroy this nation of Israel. He would take away all of their emblems that they were so proud of maintaining. He would destroy their temple. He would burn their city. The Lord Jesus would do this. He would use the Romans. He would take away all of their genealogies, the likes of which never can be found again. He would judicially punish in like kind as they had done to him to such an extent there were so many Roman crucifixions of the Jews that it is said that they ran out of timbers for the crosses. The Sadducees ceased to exist. The nation of Israel was never to recover. The builders had rejected the chief cornerstone and God in his terrible wrath would now reject them. And while this judgment began in AD 66 with a corporate judgment, it afflicted many on an individual basis. Because there is an eternal judgment under the heavy wrath of God for rejecting him and his truth. As we get into the next couple of chapters of chapter 24 and 25, which is called the Olivet Discourse, we need to be mindful that Jesus says these things are going to happen in this generation, in the generation in which he lived. There are some corporate and individual applications that we all need to consider here this morning. See, our knowledge of the sins of our fathers increases our responsibility. If I show myself to have one spirit with those whose stories I read in Scripture that God condemns, then I, in the end, will incur a judgment that has been delayed for centuries when finally the measure of the prophets is filled up and I go to my eternal home. A great amount of responsibility with the knowledge that we bear. So the question for you and me is, what do our lives testify? Not what we say, not what we think, but what are our lives testifying? Are they testifying for us or against us that we are of God's seed, his chosen ones? Now, we're all going to fall short of this glory, but there is something in which we can know that we are God's. But do our words and our attitudes and our actions does our spirit testify that we are one in solidarity with those who killed the prophets 
or one in solidarity with Jesus and the prophets? Is your life one that testifies with the one in which you came into this world, a son of disobedience, or does it testify to the fact that you have been born again and the truth has set you free? And so you can say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy truth and thy law. There are so many in the churches today sitting in the pews who are dismissing the truth, who get angry when God's messengers warn them, who reject God's messengers of truth. And so many church leaders who are going in the way of Joash, conspiring against those who speak the truth. And in our fallenness, we identify with those who kill God's prophets But in our regeneration, we become new creatures who love and embrace the truth. And if you are unsure where you stand this morning, know this, there is hope. Jesus, in his tender mercy, once again extends his grace to us. We have another opportunity to repent of our sins and to embrace the truth so that we might stand free in the liberty wherewith Christ himself has set us free. Once born again, you are in solidarity with the seed of the woman. We will still have battles to fight because now the spirit will war against the flesh. As long as we are inhabited in this old body which has the residue of the fallen world, there will be a war going on in our members. But we will have the victory in Christ. We will have the power of the Spirit. And we will have the means of grace to avail for us through the power of Christ. We will have our accusers. But our new lives in Christ will testify for us that we are His and we have been saved and we are free from the wrath that is to come. But we have to remember one thing. We are in a battle and you're on either side. You're either on Christ's side or you're on the serpent's side. And you might say the one thing but be in the other. But you need to know the truth about yourself Because when you know the truth, the truth will set you free and triumphant you can live in the liberty of Christ. Now what side do you want to be on? As Joshua would say, here's the line. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Now by the grace of God, we are gathered here together today because we love the truth. And he has brought us here. For the most part, we are a people regenerated. But I'm also mindful in a size of a church this large that the likelihood and the statistics would show that there are some here today hearing my voice but that are not truly regenerated in Christ. When the truth is spoken, there is a recoil in the spirit, a resistance or even a benign disregard and do not care. People that can sleep through sermons without any sense of guilt time and time again. When hard truths are spoken and your spirit recoils. Now, in the flesh, do we not all have these kind of responses? But then in the spirit, does not God bring us around to them? Our attitude toward the truth. Our attitude toward the messengers of truth. Our attitude toward Christ and his church. Will be that which testifies for us or it will testify against us. And may God give us the grace that he would be glorified that if we are here today and we are not yet in him, that the Spirit of God would take the warnings of Scripture and regenerate all of those souls who do not know him because one day his terrible wrath for all of eternity will be felt for rejecting Christ and his truth. This day we can be victorious and know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Our Father in heaven, as this passage, even with the tenderness and the mercies of Christ, who looked out over Jerusalem and longed to gather as a hen were her chicks underneath her wings, 
Jesus longed for this people that he loved, and yet they would not. Make us mindful that you are real and your commands are to be obeyed and your truth to be relished. We know in this fallen world, our old nature and our old man needs to be crucified and it often has residue that clings to falsehood, that loves idols and goes after immorality. But Lord, we ask that in Christ we know that we have the victory over this, that we might walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If there is anyone here this day that does not know the truth of the Savior, the power of His salvation in their life, may this day be the day of their salvation. Regenerate their hearts. Bring them to Christ save them from their sins and how as the power of the gospel goes out and even its stark warning of the, these terrible words of our lord may each one of us walk more circumspectly with his life being careful being watchful being diligent being vigilant and may we love what you love and hate what you hate and not merely have a disregard or show contempt for those things that you relish. Lord, these things are very serious matters, and yet you've given us the power in Christ to overcome. If there's anyone here today that is just encumbered in his sin, where he feels like there's no way out, that he continues to return and that he feels like there is no freedom. Lord, we pray this day you would release that person from the dominion of sin and give him the pleasure of the liberty of Christ, of being free, that he might go and live for Christ. For those who become lethargic and apathetic in their faith, and we pray you would stir us up. Revive in us and kindle in us a love for Christ and a love for the things that he loves and a hatred for the things that he hates. Lord, may our relationships one with another here be that which testifies for us that we are in Christ because we have love one for another. Forgive us of our sins, we pray. For all of the ways we've fallen short of your glory, cleanse us. The ways that our lives and our inconsistencies have testified against us, forgive us. May we not be hypocrites, play-acting, the religion while our hearts are far from you. Be merciful to us, O God, we pray. Today is the day of your salvation. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And we commit this message to the power of the Spirit to bring forth any of the fruit that you would be pleased with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.